0: Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 60, Securing Lake Champlain. Last week, we left Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen in control of Fort Ticonderoga, fighting with each other and neither really knowing what to do next. A Fort Ticonderoga sits at the southern tip of Lake Champlain. British troops in Montreal or Quebec could move down the St. Lawrence River and then down the Richelieu River to arrive at the northern end of the lake for an assault to retake Ticonderoga. Now Arnold and Allen were both men who did not sit around on their laurels. They quickly decided that the best defense was a good offense and that they needed to take control of all of Lake Champlain in order to prevent an attack on Ticonderoga. They also did not want British troops threatening the settlement on the eastern banks of the lake, where most of the Green Mountain Boys lived. They needed to act before the British, under General Carleton in Quebec, could arrange any sort of counterattack. Within days of the capture of Ticonderoga on May 10th, The Patriots secured a decent-sized ship named the Betsy, which they promptly renamed the Liberty. The sloop had belonged to a well-known Tory named Richard Skeen of Skeensboro. Both Arnold and Allen claimed credit for its capture. Neither of them were personally involved, but troops under both of their commands were present at the seizure. By May 14th, four days after the capture of Ticonderoga, Arnold had a hundred soldiers Under his command. These men were the volunteer militia from western Massachusetts that his captains had been recruiting for him while he rushed ahead to join Allen. More of these men were arriving each day while Allen's force was shrinking. The Green Mountain boys left to go home with their booty, having considered mission accomplished. A week out, Allen still had a larger command than Arnold but both knew that Arnold would soon surpass his men in numbers. For the moment, Allen retained command at Fort Ticonderoga, while Arnold took command of the ship Liberty, which made sense. Arnold had spent years as a captain of various merchant vessels, while Allen and his men really had no experience on the water. Arnold mounted four cannon on the ship, as well as six swivel guns, and selected a crew of about 35 men to set sail northward up Lake Champlain. Both men, Allen and Arnold, probably knew it was best to separate their commands to avoid continued fighting over who was in charge. At the northern tip of the lake, actually just past the lake up the Richelieu River a bit, the British had an outpost at St. Jean. Some documents refer to this as St. John's, However, since there is another St. John in Nova Scotia, I'm trying to avoid confusion by using the alternate name of St. Jean for the location we're talking about today. Now, this was about 25 miles north of the Canadian border. At the St. Jean outpost, the British maintained a much larger sloop of war called the George, with 12 cannons and 10 swivel guns. It was not big by British Navy standards but it dominated anything else on Lake Champlain. On the morning of May 16th, Arnold sailed the Liberty north toward St. Jean, arriving at the northern tip of the lake late on the evening of the 17th. Because winds were against them, and to maintain the element of surprise, Arnold's crew anchored the Liberty at the northern end of the lake and rowed longboats up the Richelieu River to St. Jean overnight. Early on the morning of the 18th, Arnold's men surprised the 15-man garrison at St. Jean, capturing them without any loss of life. The garrison had heard about the attacks at Ticonderoga at Crown Point, but were still unprepared for the raid. After capturing the garrison, Arnold's men rushed the shipyard, surprising the seven-man crew of the George. They also captured several bateaux, which are basically small flat-bottom boats used for transporting supplies. Because they did not have enough men, they destroyed the bateau that they could not take with them. Arnold, though, renamed the George the Enterprise and then transferred his command to the larger ship, leaving the liberty with a subordinate. After interrogating his British prisoners, Arnold learned that a contingent of several hundred regulars was moving on Saint Jean from Fort Chambly and Montreal. Without enough men to defend Saint Jean from so large a force, Arnold decided it best to take his new fleet, his prisoners, and several field cannon and retreat south. By noon, he was back on Lake Champlain, heading south back to Ticonderoga. Allen, however, was not content to leave all the action to Arnold. After Arnold left Fort Ticonderoga, Ethan Allen assembled about a hundred men in smaller rowboats and headed north up the lake toward St. Jean. Arnold, who was returning from his raid aboard the Enterprise by this time, met Allen's longboats out on the northern part of the open lake. The commanders met aboard the Enterprise and toasted Arnold's success. Allen then said he intended to continue his advance on St. Jean, where his men would fend off any enemy force and then organize his invasion of Montreal. Now Arnold thought this was folly. He told Allen that he believed hundreds of regulars were advancing on St. Jean and might already be there. Allen, however, decided to proceed. Arnold couldn't stop him and was probably secretly happy to see him go and fail. Allen's men made camp about a mile south of St. Jean, sending out scouts to assess the situation. The scouts reported that about 200 British regulars were advancing on the town. While not ready to engage in a night battle against a superior force, Allen's men pitched camp for the night, only to have the British wake them up near dawn with cannon fire. The regulars had seen that St. Jean had been plundered and advanced south, finding Allen's men. Outnumbered, outgunned, and caught by surprise, Allen's men jumped into their boats and rowed away before the British could reach them. No one was killed or wounded, but they evacuated so quickly that they left three men behind. The British captured one, the other two walked back through the woods over the next few days. It took Allen's force two days to row back to Ticonderoga, where Arnold essentially said, I told you so. By this time, Arnold had turned his attention to making a closer inventory of the artillery at the forts, improving fort defenses in the case of a British attack and making sure his ships were ready for battle as well. With the ships captured, though, the British did not attempt to move down the lake, but remained at the northern end. Most of the Green Mountain Boys had returned home by now, and their commander, Allen, now turned to the local Mohawks to join the cause. Now, they expressed sympathy, but said they were bound not to get involved as members of the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois, as you may recall, Nominally tried to remain neutral in all disputes, but had a really good relationship with the British. Allen's command was by this time almost completely gone, while Arnold continued to receive reinforcements from Massachusetts and Connecticut. Although they heard rumors of a British attack with Indian assistance, nothing ever materialized. The British regulars pulled back from St. Jean and awaited orders and reinforcements before attempting to advance down Lake Champlain. Now, following the capture of Ticonderoga, Allen sent Captain John Brown to Philadelphia with a report to the Continental Congress. Allen also wrote letters to the Massachusetts and Connecticut Provincial Congresses. In each report, he said that he commanded the expedition with Colonel Easton as his second-in-command and Captain Brown next in line. His account? completely ignored Arnold and gave him no credit for anything. Arnold also wrote a report for the Massachusetts Provincial Congress claiming that he and Allen had a joint command, but that Allen had no commission and really had no ability to command troops as a professional soldier. Despite the differing accounts of who did what, officials in Congress and in New England all received word of the capture within days. And Congress was not sure this was a good thing. New York delegates were not completely on board with the war yet, and they were not happy about New Englanders, particularly Allen invading New York and capturing British property there. No one seemed sure who was in charge at Ticonderoga, who should be in charge, or what anyone should do next. Arnold and Allen both received contradictory instructions over the next few weeks, both praising their action and calling them to give back everything they had just captured. Now, some moderates wanted everything returned back to the British. Others wanted it turned over to New York. They also fought over whether Arnold, Allen, or some other officer should take command of the situation. Now, Arnold and Allen both thought they should get reinforcements so that they could take Montreal and eventually Quebec before Britain sent reinforcements from England. That way, they could deny the British a launching point from which they could move down the Hudson to New York and cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. At the end of May, Congress finally sent instructions that the army should pull back to the south end of the lake, leaving all the patriot towns along the east coast, again, these are the homes of the Green Mountain Boys, undefended against a British assault. Congress further instructed the men to keep an accounting of all arms and supplies they had captured. So that they could be returned to the British or reimbursed after they had reestablished peace. Congress also said that they were not to attack any other British garrisons that were not taking provocative actions. Finally, they had to turn over all their captured ships and cannon to New York. Now, you have to remember, as I discussed about 20 episodes ago, that Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Had essentially been at war with New York for years over the ownership of their land in the grants. So you might as well be asking them to hand all their property over to the British. Because Arnold had invaded Canada without orders and captured British prisoners and equipment there, many moderates saw him as a dangerous loose cannon who was making it harder to make peace with Britain. The fact that all the other officers making reports, Allen, Easton, Brown, and Mott, all either belittled, ignored, or condemned Arnold's actions, led civilian leaders in Congress and New England to begin to develop a poor opinion of this new officer. Arnold and Allen still did not trust each other and, as I said, bowed-mouthed one another at every opportunity. But both men agreed that they were not going to give up their vital occupation of the forts and the lake, based on some idiotic political directives from civilians who clearly did not understand what was going on. Allen continued to hold command at Fort Ticonderoga, while Arnold assumed command of Lake Champlain, patrolling it with his new fleet. Fortunately, for both men, the decision to ignore Congress’s initial order to pull back did not hurt them. By the time they received the orders, Congress had reversed itself, and decided that they should, in fact, hold on to the forts and control the lake. With Massachusetts putting all of its resources into the siege of Boston, Congress asked New York to provide food and supplies for the forces in and around Lake Champlain. It also requested that Connecticut supply more troops to secure the region from any potential attack. Connecticut Governor Trumbull, agreed with the assessment that they needed reinforcements at Ticonderoga, but he did not want to leave either Arnold or Allen in charge of anything. Instead, he sent a thousand troops under the command of Colonel Benjamin Hinman. Now, Hinman was a veteran of the Connecticut militia who had served during the French and Indian War, and he had experience in this very theater. He participated in the capture of Fort Ticonderoga Crown Point and Quebec during the French and Indian War 20 years earlier. One of his junior officers during the war was Major Israel Putnam, now serving as a general outside of Boston. So Hinman's experience and political connections inspired far more confidence in political leaders than the unknown Arnold or Allen. Although Arnold was from Connecticut and started as a Connecticut militia captain, Massachusetts had given him his colonelcy and authorized his command at Ticonderoga. And now Massachusetts wanted other colonies to deal with Ticonderoga so that Massachusetts could focus its men, money, and resources on retaking Boston. They only wanted Ticonderoga to send them the cannons that they had been promised in the first place. So Massachusetts dispatched its own colonel, William Henshaw, to evaluate the Massachusetts troops that were already at Lake Champlain and to determine whether Arnold should remain in command or be discharged. they sent Arnold a copy of these orders. Rather than traveling to Ticonderoga, though, Henshaw went to Connecticut, where he conferred with Governor Trumbull, and learned that Colonel Hinman was already on his way to Ticonderoga with a thousand troops. Henshaw then sent written orders to Arnold that Hinman would take command of Ticonderoga. But that order only caused more confusion. Arnold was no longer in Ticonderoga. He was commanding a fleet on Lake Champlain. So Arnold chose to interpret the order as meaning that Hinman was in charge of the fort, but that Arnold continued to be commander of Lake Champlain. To me, it seems reasonable to forgive Arnold for interpreting the orders in his favor. He seemed to receive new orders just about every day. First, the Massachusetts Committee of Safety ordered him to return with the promised artillery. Then they ordered him to take orders from Henshaw, which meant turning over his command to Hinman. Then they sent him a message saying how much they admired what he had done and begging him not to leave his command. So Arnold simply continued his work on the lake, shoring up defenses and doing what he thought best. When Hinman arrived at Ticonderoga in early June, Allen and Easton turned over the fort to his command. They then went upriver to Arnold's command at Crown Point. There, Allen attempted to claim command from Arnold. Arnold, however, refused. Allen had no commission and no authorization to take command. The troops at Crown Point were loyal to Arnold, and Allen realized that and had to back down. If that had been the end of the matter, it probably would not have been a big deal to anyone. The following morning though, Allen and Easton tried to leave camp when a sentry demanded to see their pass. Indignant, the officers demanded that they be allowed to leave. Instead, the sentry sent them back to Arnold to get a pass. Now, with everyone in a particularly bad mood, the conversation grew heated. Arnold blamed Easton for badmouthing him in Massachusetts. He grabbed Easton by the lapels and dared him to draw his sword or pistol. When the surprise Easton demurred, Arnold kicked and assaulted the officer, telling him to get out of Crown Point and stay out. So these officers, who had always disliked Arnold, now grew to hate him. Arnold continued to push for more reinforcements and approval for an invasion of Canada. Allen, however, returned to Ticonderoga to push for his own command of an invasion of Canada. About a week later, Colonel Hinman, that's the guy who Connecticut sent to take charge of Ticonderoga, came to Crown Point to meet Arnold. Hinman demanded that Arnold turn over his command, but Arnold refused, saying Hinman had nothing that authorized a Connecticut colonel to take command away from a Massachusetts colonel. Hinman simply returned to Ticonderoga and requested further orders on how to handle the Arnold situation the members of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress decided that they had no idea what was really going on out there at Lake Champlain. So now they decided to send a three-man delegation to Ticonderoga and figure out the best solution. The delegation first met with Colonel Hinman and was upset to hear that Arnold had refused to accept his command. They then traveled to Crown Point to confront Arnold directly. Arnold demanded to see their authorization. Upon reading it, he decided it was now clear that Hinman was replacing him as theater commander. The delegation told Arnold that they were there to evaluate his conduct and that if they deemed him worthy, he could continue to serve under Colonel Hinman. But Arnold was not going to turn over his command to some officer who just showed up after Arnold had conquered the whole region. Instead, he opted to resign his commission and leave. At that point, the soldiers under Arnold's command grew concerned. Arnold still owed them a great deal of back pay. And when they asked him about it, Arnold basically told him, not my problem, go talk to your new commander. The men then took Arnold hostage aboard the Enterprise and sent their demands to Colonel Hinman and the delegation now at Fort Ticonderoga. The delegation diffused the situation by paying off the men's back pay dismissing those who wanted to go home and re-enlisting those who would continue. No one on the scene really blamed Arnold for the mutiny, but that did not stop Colonel Mott from publishing a report blaming Arnold for the mutiny and falsely accusing the mutineers of firing on the Massachusetts delegation. No one took that report seriously, but it indicates how much just about every other officer who had served with or near Arnold now considered him an enemy. To add another insult to Arnold, they offered command to his enemy, Colonel Easton, and promoted John Brown to major under Easton's command. Arnold's other great frustration as he prepared to leave was over money. Massachusetts had permitted him to borrow on his own credit for supplies necessary to complete his mission. The delegation refused to pay off these debts. Arnold had to send for personal funds from home to pay off his debts and then beg Congress to repay him. Although Arnold had made a fair number of enemies, there were others who were impressed with his accomplishments. Philip Schuyler of New York was one of them. Schuyler had recently received a commission as Major General in the New Continental Army and took command of all forces in New York. In early July, Arnold headed to Albany to see if he could find a command under Schuyler. The General requested that he be appointed Deputy adjutant General. The two men seemed to hit it off, but then news arrived for Arnold that his wife had died back in Connecticut. His three sons, ages three to seven, were now in the care of his sister. Arnold returned home to settle the affairs with his family. He would then have to settle his financial affairs with officials in Cambridge, and also meet the new Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, George Washington. So next week, we're going to head back to Boston, where the British Navy loses a ship to the Patriots at the Battle of Chelsea Creek. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never frozen, chef crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add ons, including breakfasts, on the go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com/arp50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, back again for another edition of the American Revolution Podcast Book Review. Before I get to this week's review, I want to ask a favor. August was kind of a disappointing month for me in terms of listenership. I got into this podcast without any expectation of much of an audience at all. But as the podcast has taken off, I've found myself addicted to watching the numbers grow. So, if you enjoy this podcast, please help spread the good word via Twitter, Facebook, or whatever social media you use. Tell your friends. Also, if you are so inclined leaving me a good five-star review on iTunes or other rating sites will help get the word out, and it would really mean a lot to me. Okay, so once again, I'm going to recommend two books today, again by the same author. One of the books I used for this episode was The War Before Independence by Derek Beck. It covers the period immediately following Lexington and Concord in spring 1775 through the British evacuation of Boston in spring 1776. It gives detailed attention to the first year of actual warfare. Now, this book is a sequel to Beck's first book, Igniting the American Revolution, which covers pre-war events from the Boston Tea Party through Lexington and Concord. I relied on that book for earlier episodes, but I'm only getting around to recommending it now because I used it before I started making these book reviews. Now, books like these are particularly interesting to me. They do not try to cover the entire war. Such books inevitably leave out many details and smaller events. Other books cover a single major event, like a big battle. Those are very interesting and get into a lot of detail, but of course, those books never get to the smaller events of the war. Books like the ones Beck has written for us are kind of in between those other two. They cover a year or two of the war and allow the author to get into some details and cover smaller events of the period in a thoughtful way. This is what these two books do very well. Both books give a detailed insight into events in the early years leading to war and the first action of the war after fighting begins. They are both well over 400 pages each, with about a third of that being endnotes and indices. They also include some helpful appendices with interesting facts as well. Both books are relatively recent publications, Igniting the American Revolution came out in 2015 and The War Before Independence a year later in 2016. Mr. Beck, actually Colonel Beck, is an Air Force officer with an obvious passion for the American Revolution. He's a contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution and also runs a blog at www.derrickbeck.com. Now, since I mentioned it, I'll also give a shout-out to the Journal of the American Revolution. This is a great online resource with a wide range of articles on all things revolution. You can browse the site or search for topics at the journal's website, allthingsliberty.com. Now, if you're interested in either of Mr. Beck's books, I have a link to them on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. The link will take you to Amazon and let you purchase the books. And if you order through my link, Amazon gives me a small commission to help support this podcast. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you'll be back next week for another episode of the American Revolution Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.